Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Well, I've got to tell you, uh, last week two things happened here that have not happened to me before. Number one, I broke a pulpit. I have never done that before in my life. <laughs> that was rich, wasn't it? And uh, they got this thing fixed. And the other thing is, is um, in the baptistry, I just want you to know that the waiters don't work. I didn't tell you that last week because we already had all the other stuff going on. I thought, what the world, you know? I mean, I don't know what was going on, but those waiters are, uh, amen, praise God. He's good. (laughs) I could go a lot of different places with that, and I will not. All right, let's look at Judges. Um, (laughs) When we believe the Lord, uh, it's amazing what he's able to do in and through us, amen? Have you ever thought about that? When we just simply trust the Lord, right? When we say yes to him, uh, in the midst of circumstances we don't understand all the time, we don't know what the results are gonna be, we don't know the outcome. When we just trust the Lord, it's amazing what God is able to do in and through us. I love, uh, have you heard of Lauren Daigle? I don't know if you've heard her music or not, but she's got a song out right now, and, and basically she makes this statement. She says this, uh, if, if the mountains that I want to be moved aren't moved, I'm still gonna trust you. Man, so good. In other words, if things don't go the way you want them to go, if it doesn't work out the way that you prayed, <laughs> maybe even fervently, it's okay, we'll still trust the Lord. When God begins to do a work and God begins to transform us, God will always lead us to himself. And sometimes we don't feel him. Sometimes we don't understand what he's doing. Sometimes we don't understand how it's gonna, how it's gonna work out. But we know that the character of God is immutable. He's, he's never changing. He's the same yesterday as he is today as he will be forever. And he is trustworthy, he's faithful in everything. The question is, as a people, personally, corporately, are we trusting the Lord in the midst of what it is that he wants to do in and through our lives? Because when we begin to trust him, then God is able to accomplish mighty things. We're going to look at uh, the book of Judges over the next couple weeks. And (laughs) this book is unbelievable, isn't it? This is the dark ages of Israel's history in many, many ways. And it's kind of like the dirty laundry just being put out there for everybody to see. And in the midst of it, God's grace is profound. How these men and these women began to trust the Lord in the midst of insurmountable odds is amazing to behold. They weren't perfect. They were deeply flawed. We'll look at Samson next week and God bless the guy, you know? But in the midst of it, God does tremendous things. God's grace is amazing. We just sang it. They didn't deserve some of these things. They had rebelled. Many ways they had begun to go after pagan idols. And yet, in the midst of it, the Lord remains faithful. His grace is sufficient. Let me give you some facts, interesting facts. 
about the book of Judges. There's a cycle of sin and restoration. You can see this through the whole book. You'll see this over and over and over again. If you miss it, if you're reading through the book of Judges and you miss this cycle, you really have missed the whole picture of the book. There's many different ways to put this. I like this one. There's sin, right? They sin against God. They go after pagan idols or they do whatever they're gonna do. They're gonna sin. There's servitude as a result. They are placed under bondage by an outside source, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, all these different people God uses in order to place them under bondage. And as a result, they begin to cry out to God. There's supplication. And they begin to ask God to rescue them. And God in his grace and his mercy provides salvation for them. And we're not talking necessarily saved from hell kind of salvation. We're talking about salvation in the midst of their lives. They are under bondage and they're crying out to God. And God rescues them from the immediate danger that they're in. In many cases because of the Midianites, because of the Philistines, because of these different people groups. So over and over again you see this particular cycle. It spans the book of Judges, a period of time of of about 300 years, maybe 350 if you add Eli and you add Samuel into that, the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, you begin to see uh, that it begins to span a period of about 300 to 350 years. And folks, that's that's quite a time. That's longer than our country's been in existence, which is really remarkable when you begin to think about it. There are seven apostasies, seven times where they turn. There are seven servitudes where they've been placed under bondage. There are seven deliverances where the Lord comes in and rescues them. There are about 15 judges, if you add Eli and Samuel into that. There's about 15 of them. And they were military deliverers. They came alongside. God used these people groups to come against Israel and to place them under bondage in order that they would turn back to him. And folks, don't miss that because it's a beautiful picture. These are God's people. And when the Lord begins to discipline in our own personal lives, he's not doing it to put us down. He's doing it because we've gotten off course and we need to get back and be right with him. He's doing it in order to draw us back to himself. That is grace in and of itself. Well, the enemies I've already remarked on, but there's a civil war in the midst of this, the tribe of Benjamin, and there's all kinds of immorality. Don't don't miss this, folks. The pagan gods, I'm not going to get into the details of it. It's disgusting what these pagan gods were all about. Fertility gods. right? So the moral perversion, the sexual perversion... You can see that in the Levites' concubine and, and that whole story. It's, it's just, just indescribable. The depth of depravity that we're seeing here. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, four times this statement is made. And, and it's one of these key statements that are repeated throughout the entire book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Let me ask you something. Is there anything different? today? No, I don't think so. My goodness, I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want, and it doesn't even have to conform to reality. (laughs) Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's interesting to me that Moses warned them of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, 
He warns them about idolatry in chapter, in chapter 12, verses two and following. He says, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree. These are the worship areas for the pagan gods. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. Why? Because God is one. Really interesting in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 12, what Moses actually warns them. Years before this takes place, before they even go into the land, before Joshua is used of the Lord with all the Israelites to conquer the land, Moses warns them of this. He says, you shall not do at all what we are doing here Today, and he says this every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Moses warned him of this. And he uses the precise language to warn them that is used then in the book of Judges to reveal their wicked hearts their fleshly, carnal hearts towards God. The cycle of sin and restoration, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, you see it over and over and over again. But it starts with sin, folks. It starts with sin. And there's two ways in which this takes place. There's compromise, and then there's apostasy. The compromise leads to apostasy. Compromise means that they allowed the deluding influences of these pagan cultures into their lives. They got comfortable with them. They embraced them. Rather than destroying these people groups like they had been uh, commanded to do, they allowed them to stay. They became a thorn in their flesh, so to speak. Just like the Lord warned them, just like Moses warned them, just like Joshua had warned them. They became comfortable with their surroundings and the sinfulness of those surroundings. And it led them to very depraved moments, including apostasy, where they were worshiping other idols rather than the Lord. Folks, if that doesn't resonate today, I don't know what does. How comfortable have we become in our society with sin? We don't want to call it for what it is. We don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. We certainly don't want to admit that we struggle with it. We're not transparent in it. And the reality of it is, it's all around us. How comfortable have we become by the influences of the world that ultimately begin to diminish the glory of God in and through our lives. There's a great comparison that Wilmington gives in his overview of scripture, and I believe we have that, Joshua versus the judges. What did they experience under Joshua? What did they experience under the judges? Let's put it this way. What did they experience when they walked by faith, when they walked with the Lord, versus what did they experience when they were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Under Joshua, under faith, they experienced victory. They experienced freedom. They experienced faith, progress, obedience, heavenly vision, joy, strength, unity among the tribes, strong leadership. 
But with the judges, what did they experience? When they weren't walking with God, when they weren't following God, when they weren't walking by faith, defeat, slavery, unbelief, declension. They went down, disobedience, earthly emphasis, sorrow, weakness, disunity among the tribes. No strong leadership. There's something that's missing in those lists. I don't know if it hit you. I was looking at this, praying through this this week, and there's something that's missing. When, when we walk by faith, God begins to do things in and through us. God begins to transform us. When Israel began to walk by faith, God used them in order to bring judgment upon these tribes. And what happened? Joshua's name was proclaimed through the whole land. There was a fame there. And Joshua wouldn't take that to himself. But what did Rahab say to the spies? We have heard of your God. And we know that your God is with you. Because we've heard of all the works. We've heard of all the things that he's done for you. And we know that God has given us into your hands. What did the kings say when they came together because they had seen what Joshua was able to do with Jericho and I through the strength and the power of the Lord? They came together and they knew that Moses had said to destroy What were they doing? They were trying to fight against this. They had heard of the glory of God. Folks, when we walk by faith, God is glorified. When we don't walk by faith, guess what happens? The glory of God is diminished in our lives. Nobody can diminish ultimately the glory of God. But when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the true identity of who he really is. When we walk by faith, people get to see who God really is, and we get to testify about that. We get to share with people the hope that we have, and we need to point them to Christ in everything that we're doing, and we have that privilege, that opportunity. When we don't walk by faith, we look like just everybody else. They look like everybody else. They look like all the peoples of the land that they were supposed to dispossess. And as a result, the glory of God They became centrally focused. They became focused on themselves. They became focused on their problems. They became focused on their needs rather than trusting that God was going to take care of all that and being focused on the Lord. Through those who believe, the Lord is able to accomplish mighty things. Do we believe that today? Do you feel weak today? (laughs) Are there challenges you're looking at in your life and you're going, I don't think I can do that? Hey, welcome to the normal Christian life. Right? You can't do it. God never said you could. He can. He always said he would. Folks, if that's not a picture of judges, I don't know what is. We're going to look at 10 things this morning. Don't get scared. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) I got two minutes per point, you know. No, it's good. We're going to go up to, uh, we're going to look at Samson, we're going to look at Ruth, Eli, and Samuel next week. Well, let's start with Othniel. Othniel, phenomenal individual. Some of these individuals we don't know a whole lot about, so I'm going to focus on the ones that we, we know more about. The great picture of this span of 300 years, Othniel's the first recorded judge. Uh, Othniel, is, it's told us, is the son of Kenes, the youngest brother of Caleb. And he judged 
Israel. He won victories. We don't know all the story there. We don't know all the picture. But I think it's imperative to understand that he is, in effect, the nephew of Caleb. Now think with me on this. You remember Caleb, right? Went into the land. He and Joshua were the only ones that survived the 40 years of wandering with the first generation in order to come into the land with the second generation. Caleb picks the city that has the number one ranking Anakim. Right? They were scared to death of the Anakim. These huge people. I don't, who knows, right? And Caleb picks the city. And he says, give me that one. He says, God will take care of this. Well, Othniel is Caleb's nephew. You think that's a little important? I think that's important. Folks, you realize that the testimonies that we have today about God's power and his sufficiency, what he's able to do, how we walk with the Lord, impact our families and the generations that are to come. And it's clear that Othniel was impacted by Caleb. We need people that are willing to stand up for the faith, that are willing to walk with God, that are willing to point to Christ in everything, that are willing to say God is able, even when it looks like insurmountable odds. Because the younger generations need to look to us to say that's how you walk with God. I know, because I've watched it happen. When I was growing up, I went through some difficult things in my life and praise God for them. But I'll tell you one thing that I knew that I could never say. I could never say that there was not a God because I could see in my own father that there was clearly a God. And I didn't know him fully. I knew about him. I'd gone to church my entire life. But the reality of it is I knew that he had a personal relationship with the Lord. And when it came time when God met with me and I went through a time of rebellion and all the different things that I went through, I kept clinging on to the fact, I know there's a God because I've watched my dad walk with him. Folks, let's be a people that walk with God, that give a testimony to the generations to come, that they can point to us and they can say, look at what God did in and through them. Ahud is an interesting one. He's the second judge. The assassin. <laughs> this guy's interesting, isn't it? He's the one that goes down to the king of Moab and he gives him tribute from Israel. Israel again has sinned. They're worshiping other idols. And he's taking the tribute down to the king of Moab. And I won't get into the, all the gory details. Some of the boys are going to go, yes. Some of the girls will faint. We don't want that. It's all good. You can read it for yourself. But he creates a sword and he kills the king of Moab. He was left-handed. He placed the sword under his right thigh. So evidently they were checking on, on the right side because if he were right-handed, that's where they would place their swords. And he got in and he delivers Israel from the hand of the Moabites. The land had rest for 80 years. Here's a guy that was a simple guy. He's taking the tribute down to the king and he believes God and he trusts God. And he walks on the basis of that. And the Lord uses him to deliver Israel. Shamgar. Man, this guy's something, isn't he? Kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Don't mess with that dude. Right? You know what an ox goad is, right? I, didn't, I never knew what an ox goad is. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm. But it's a long pointy stick where if the oxen get out of line, you're behind them. 
You don't want to be in front of them. And what do you do? You start poking them. You know, it's your kind of weapon to protect if the oxen either come at you or you want them to go somewhere they don't want to go. You start poking them. You know, God bless them. 600 Philistines with an ox goat. I mean, that's something. Right? When you believe God, amazing things can happen. God is able to deliver. God is able to do things that you can't even imagine. When we simply trust the Lord and say yes to him and walk with him. Oh, we get to Deborah. Balak. Balak the timid. <laughs> Balak's an interesting guy. He's a warrior. Deborah's judging Israel at the time. And praise God for her. You know, the men took a seat behind. They wouldn't be the spiritual leaders. And so God raised up Deborah. And God bless all the Debras out there. Right? We need you. Amen? Well, what happens? The king of the Canaanites is Jabin. Sisera is his army commander. Look at Judges chapter 4, verse 3. Judges 4, 3. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, right? What had they done? They had sinned again. They had allowed the influence of these pagan people to come upon them. And they cry out to the Lord because now they've been given over to these people to the Canaanites, they cry out to the Lord, and it, this is what it says, the king of the Canaanites, Jabin, he, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now, <laughs> without going too much off, off course here, if you remember, when they first came into the land, Joshua had all these victories, right? And then they, they divided the land up, they had the inheritance, everybody got their allotment. And each tribe was supposed to finish Cleaning it up. Can I put it that way? Well, Judah goes into the hill country and they do what they're supposed to do. But guess what? In the, in the plains, there was this group of people that had 900 chariots. And they said, oh, we can't do that. They got 900 chariots. Iron chariots. Folks, when we don't deal with sin in our lives right now, it will come back. And at times when we don't deal with sin the way that God wants us to deal with it, guess what? Other people are going to have to take care of it as well. Well, in verses 6 through 9 of Judges 4, it says, She sent and summoned Barak, this is Deborah, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh, Naphtali, it's up in the north, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. And then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, folks, that... <laughs> Some, some people want to spiritualize this and say, well, what he was really saying is she's a prophetess from God. And, and, and he really wanted God, in effect, to go before. No, no, no. He's chicken. <laughs> He's superstitious. He's timid. He ought to be the spiritual leader. And instead, he says, you go. And if you're not going, I'm not going. She says to him, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. 
Now, we know that what he did here wasn't exactly honoring to the Lord. Why? Because Deborah tells him, well, I'm going to go. And you're going to have a victory. But guess what? (laughs) It's going to be given into the hands of a woman, the honor. You're not going to get that honor. Somebody else is. Well, we know the story. Jael, the wife of Heber, used a tent peg to kill Sisera. Right? There's a big battle. The 900 chariots, they're defeated. Sisera, the commander of the army, is running to hide. And he finds this tent. He's exhausted. And it's Jael. And she comes out and says, what do you need? And he says, I need something to drink. Can you give me some water? She gives him milk. Later on in the song of Deborah, Balak, you see, gave him milk curds. Yuck, gross. I mean, when you're thirsty, yeah. I don't know about the curds. <laughs> I like cold milk, but not, yeah, that's, that, I don't know. That doesn't sound very thirst quenching, you know. I want Powerade, Gatorade, something. And then she kills him. They come looking for him. There he is, dead. I could say dead as a hammer, but that's a really bad joke. Gideon, the fearful. Wow, Gideon. Is Gideon a picture of God's grace or what? Mighty warrior. (laughs) Right. In Judges chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, he's talking about the Midianites. Israel was hiding in dens and caves in the mountains. When they would sow their crops, Midian with the Amalekites would come up and destroy them. So food is scarce, they're fearful. In Judges 6, verses 5 through 6, it says, For they would come up with their livestock, their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. They came into the land to devastate it. And so Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Folks, let me ask you something. Is this what God's will for them was? This isn't what God's will for them was. God's will wasn't for them to be living in fear, to be living in, t- in caves, in dwellings in the mountains, to be walking around fearful about their enemies. When you don't trust the Lord, when you don't walk by faith, when you don't walk in his strength, when you don't walk according to his ways, <laughs> we reap the consequences. When we do walk with the Lord, it's not that everything goes smoothly. It's not that everything's perfect. It's not that everything's rosy. It's not that you're not going to go through suffering. We know that from the New Testament. But you're going to go through it with God. And therefore, you can be at peace even if all hell's breaking loose around you. You can walk through things and, and there's this peace of God which passes all understanding in the midst of your life. There's a grace. There's a kindness. There's a goodness. And things may not necessarily, for believers today, be working out exactly like we would want them. But God's grace is upon us and God's glory is being revealed through us. Gideon was fearful. In Judges chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, the Lord reminds them. This is such a great picture of grace. The Lord reminds the people because they've cried out to the Lord. They want to be delivered. And the Lord reminds the people of what he has done for them and the fact that they have not obeyed him. Very next verse in 11. Verse 11. What does he do? 
he goes and visits Gideon. Do you catch it? They cry out to him. They've been oppressed. And they're asking for delivery. And the Lord goes to him and says, you haven't obeyed me. Remember all the things I've done for you? Remember what I told you to do? You haven't done it. You haven't obeyed me. And then he immediately goes and visits Gideon. Man, that's grace. Did they deserve to be rescued? Did they deserve to be freed? Did they deserve to walk in the blessings that God had promised them? Absolutely not. And yet by God's grace, he goes to Gideon. Where's Gideon? Gideon's in the threshing wheat in a wine, he's threshing wheat in a wine press out of the fear of the Midians. Now, I don't know much about threshing wheat, but I do know this. When you thresh wheat, you want to be somewhere where the wind can get the chaff away, and you throw the wheat up into the air, the wind blows the chaff away, so that what lands back is just the wheat, right? That doesn't happen in a wine press, folks. You know, He's there, why? Because he's fearful. He's there because he's scared. He's there because he knows the Midianites may come against him, may take the food. And the Lord comes to him in his fear. And in verse 12 of Judges 6, he says this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And by the way, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We call this a Christophany. That's a, that's a uh, fancy word for the appearance of Christ prior to his being born on this earth. Before he became a man, as John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. <laughs> what? Oh, Lord? Did you see this right? You know what's beautiful? Is the Lord always looks past where we are right now to what he's able to do in and through us when we believe in him. Isn't that cool? You may be shaking in your boots right now, but the Lord looks past that because he knows what he can do in and through your life when you believe him, when you say yes to him. He knows what he can accomplish through you because when we believe him, he can do mighty things. Judges 6.15, he says to him, Oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? And this is kind of the woe is me moment. Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. Now catch that. Gideon's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's scared to death. The Lord calls him a valiant warrior. The Lord tells him that you're going to go and you're going to defeat these people. And Gideon goes, do what? I'm of the tribe of Manasseh. I'm, my family's the least in Manasseh. And I'm the youngest of my family. In other words, valiant warrior, who are you talking to? It ain't me. You can imagine that Gideon's standing there and looking around saying, did I miss somebody coming in? You're talking to me about this? Our fearful, fearful warrior. Well, the Lord makes himself known to Gideon. And Gideon cries out, oh, I've seen the Lord. The Lord says, you're not going to die. Later that night, he comes back to him and he basically tells him, um, by the way, those idols that your father owns, I want you to destroy them. And Gideon's so fearful. <laughs> doesn't go in the day to go do it. Valiant warrior, right? What does he do? He sneaks off at night. He gets some people with him and he goes, oh, I got to do this. We're going to go at night. Who knows what time. But clearly he didn't want to be found out. Well, he's found out. And his dad makes a great statement. They want to kill Gideon because he's, he's destroyed the idol of, of Baal. And his dad says, hey, let Baal contend for himself. If Baal can't protect himself against Gideon, what's the problem? 
That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Well, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. He forms an army, or so to speak. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. We, we tend to read these stories, and we don't put ourselves into this position because we, we say, Gideon, you, you, you were fearful. You weren't really valiant, all this kind of stuff. You know what? Let me ask you something. If you were there and you had an army in the Valley of Jezreel, which is the Megiddo Valley, that was innumerable, how would you feel? How would you feel? So Gideon goes to the Lord, and we have the whole fleece moment. Uh, Lord, if you're really in this, I'm going to put out this fleece, and I want you to put dew on it, but not have dew on the rest. And then the Lord does it. He's like, oh, great. So, okay, Lord, really? I just want to make sure. You know what's really cool about this? This is not the way that we follow God, folks. You don't say, as New Testament believers, well, we're going to put out a fleece here. Gideon was not trusting the Lord. Gideon doubted the Lord. But you know what's beautiful about God's grace is that the Lord knew that Gideon needed to be affirmed. And he did it anyway. He condescended himself to the level where he knew that Gideon was at because he was seeing past Gideon as to what he, the Lord, was able to do in and through Gideon when Gideon believed. Well, 32,000 fighting men gather, and the Lord, by various means, brings it down to 300. Hey, everybody that's scared, go home. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, most of these people take off, right? Oh, and, and that's still too big because they still might take credit for the, the victory in the battle. It's my battle, and I'm going to win it. And so we're going to pare it down even more. They end up getting down to 300. Those who lap their hands, you're going to keep them. Those who get on their knees, yeah, send them home. Send them home. Folks, we trust in so unbelievable things. Do we really think that the Lord is not able? I do it all the time. Don't you? We, we get into circumstances and we suddenly get thrown and we think somehow God's not capable of this. God didn't even need 300. All he needed was Gideon. And ultimately, he didn't even need him. Well, Gideon again is fearful. And this time, the Lord comes to him, right? We're down to 300. <laughs> Wouldn't you be scared? Right? So the Lord goes to him and says, Gideon, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I know you're scared, man. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down, and I want you to listen to what you hear. Because it'll give you the strength that is necessary in order to go into the battle like I've called you to. And so he does. He goes down and he, you know, he sneaks up to a tent, starts to listen. And he hears this guy giving an account of a dream that he had. And then he hears the guy's friend translating the dream. And he says, it's, it's got to be Gideon. It's the sword of Gideon. God has given this whole camp into the hand of Gideon. Can you imagine Gideon's thoughts? In Judges 7.15, this is a beautiful picture when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, what does he do? He bowed in worship. That's the first time that we hear of Gideon worshiping. He bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. All of a sudden, 
All of a sudden, he sees what God's been doing. He goes back and he looks at the fact that he had given a sacrifice and the Lord revealed himself to us. And even in the midst of his fear, the Lord came and said, you're not going to die. Or he goes and he has the fleece and God condescends himself to the point where he's willing to affirm Gideon. Yes, this is truly what I'm telling you to do. And then God comes to Gideon and says, go down and listen. Because it'll strengthen your right hand into the battle that I have for you. And when Gideon goes down and hears this, he bows and he worships. He recognizes something. God's ahead of me. And who can stand in God's way? It's a beautiful picture of what God is able to do when when we're willing to trust him. Gideon and his 300 men, they blow their trumpets, lift up their torches, and God sets the camp into a confusion. They begin to kill one another, and they flee. Many come and begin to help Gideon as a result. Oh, now they show up, right? In chapter 8, verse 10, we find that 120,000 of the enemy have been killed, and the rest are routed. Their kings are captured and killed. They have 40 years of rest. Wow. Are you fearful today? Is there something you're worried about? Folks, if you say that you're not, you got to be kidding me, right? There's something. There always is. The question is, what do you do with it? You run to the Lord with it. You trust the Lord with it. You say yes to the Lord in it. You're willing to believe that God is able in spite of what you can see and understand, in spite of what consequences may come your way. It's amazing what God can do when we trust him. Well, Abimelech, I'm not going to get into all that. Gideon's son, there's a bit of a civil war as a result of this. We have Tola and Jair, 45 years between the two of them. We don't know much other than that they judged Israel. And then in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, it says this, The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Folks, in other words, they began to serve all of the people groups that were around their gods. Total apostasy here. The Lord tells them he will not deliver them any longer. But they put away their false gods and they begin to serve the Lord. It's a beautiful picture here because they begin to literally serve and worship all the gods of the people groups that are around them that they were supposed to dispossess in the first place and had been warned what would happen if they didn't. And in the midst of it, the Lord comes and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord says, I'm I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. And their response is really interesting. They say, "Do, do to us what you will. We're going to serve you. And they put away their gods, and they begin to serve the Lord. And Judges chapter 10, verse 16, such a beautiful picture of grace. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And listen to this. And he, the Lord, could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Wow. God relents, and out of his grace, even though they don't deserve it, begins to work on their behalf, and we get the story of Jephthah. Jephthah is the son of a harlot. He's driven away by his own family. They don't want anything to do with him, and he's raised up by the Lord. He has a tremendous victory over the Ammonites. He judges Israel for approximately six years, and in the midst of it, he makes a tragic vow. And folks, we got to be careful of this trap, don't we? 
God's called him to something. God's told him he's going to have victory. He's placed as the leader over the people that he had at once been kicked out by. But he's so insecure in what the results are going to be that he makes a vow to God and he says, whatever comes out of my home to greet me when I get back, I will sacrifice it to you, Lord, if you will give me the victory. And the first one that comes out to greet him after the victory is his daughter. Oh, how often do we say to the Lord, I'll promise to do this if you will just do this. And we place ourselves in a position that God doesn't want us to be. What does he want? He wants us to trust him, yield to him, walk with him. And trust him with whatever the results may be. When we know what the Lord's will is, we can depend upon God in order to accomplish it. We don't need to make vows to him. We don't need to place ourselves under some kind of a a, a legal system or a merit-based system. Lord, if, if you will just do this, then I will do this. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. The Lord is able. Well, we had Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Seven years, 10 years, and eight years. And that's all we basically know about them. (laughs) There's not a whole lot. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. I'm sure you know it well. The writer says this, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Wow, is that cool or what? I mean, is this the same people we just read about? The guy that said, I'm not going unless you go. The guy that says, I got to go into the wine press in order to thresh wheat. And you're calling me a valiant warrior? A person that's been kicked out and estranged by his people and doesn't want anything to do with them and, and tries to promise God something to make sure that the results go the way that he wants them to go? Are we talking about the same people? Wait till we get into Samson, folks. What a mess. What a mess. But yet, what does the writer say? By faith, by faith, by faith. Let me give you several takeaways. Judges is an amazing book. We're going to look at the rest of it next week. But are we compromising our standards to the point that the Lord needs to discipline us? You know, God does it out of love, folks. He doesn't do it to get us, going to put you down. He does it because he cares for us. He loves us. He takes the time. He's a loving father, and he wants us to walk with him and enjoy all that he has already given to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would simply put it this way. Stop compromising. Stop compromising. I say it to myself as much as anybody else, and praise God for his grace. The second thing is stop making excuses. Are we willing to trust the Lord regardless of our weakness, our fear, our inabilities? What excuses are we going to come up with that we're not going to follow God? Oh, Lord, oh no, you must not mean me in this one, right? That's somebody else that's supposed to do that. It's a paid staff that the pastors are supposed to do that. Fill in the blank. 
Stop making excuses, folks. We have God in us, and he's able to do great and mighty things when we trust him, when we say yes to him, and when we're willing to follow him. Are we worshiping the Lord? Are we walking in his sufficiency and strength? Do we agree with him that he alone is able? Are we experiencing his victories in and through our lives? What is it that's a challenge to you? What is it that's a tripping stone to you? What is it that you immediately go, oh man, I just, I can't. And in the midst of that, you came to a truth. Because God doesn't expect you to be able to. That's why he sent his son, not only to die, but to come into our lives. So, because he can. The question is not whether I can or not. Without God, it's impossible. I can do nothing apart from him. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's not based on me. It's not based on you. The question is, are we trusting him? Are we willing to say yes to him? And are we willing to believe that what he said is true? What would the Lord do in our lives What can the Lord do in our lives if we were to absolutely wholeheartedly with everything that we got, our utmost for his highest, as Oswald puts it? What would the Lord do, not only individually in our lives, if we were to yield to him everything? What would the Lord do through this church body, through this congregation, if we were to say, all for Christ, everything for him? What would God do? I'll let you fill in the blank. What victories would you expect of God in the midst of your life? What victories would we expect of God in the midst of our church to say, look what God has done and the glory of God. May it not be diminished, but may it be revealed. What would God do? You fill in the blank. There's people all around us, folks, they're dying to see Christ in us, through us. They're absolutely hungry and thirsty for something real. The question is, are we willing to say, all of my finances, all of my time, everything that I am, all my energy is for him and for him alone, my utmost for his highest. What could God do when we will simply believe him? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.